He is risen. Risen indeed. Man, just look at you. You look so good today. Just want to give all of you one big church family hug. I love you all, and I'm so glad that we are here together today on this beautiful Easter morning. Finally, we got some sunlight this year. We had three years of clouds, uh, so that's good. Off to a good start. But before we jump into our sermon today, I wanted to... I wanted to say a quick thank you. Last week, we ended our uh, semester of Sunday school, and so I wanted to thank, sincerely thank all of our Sunday school teachers uh, for your service and for your love of our kids and for your ministry. All these kids you've been seeing coming up on this stage, professing faith, coming to the Lord's table, and the more that are coming after them, that's the fruit of your ministry. And so I thank you for it again, and I thank you personally, because you are giving me and my wife the opportunity to talk to our kids about our faith. Last week, I got home from church, and we were talking to Ava, and I asked, Ava, what did you learn about in Sunday school today? And she goes, fire. (laughs) So after a little bit of investigation, I realized, oh, you learned about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the three men in the fire. She looked at me and she goes, no, daddy. There were four men in the fire. It's like she was so annoyed too. And she was so put out. How long must I deal with this faithless generation? And then I, I spanked her. And then... And then I was also talking with uh, Asher, and he goes, um, Daddy, are there diamonds in heaven? I said, buddy, there's more diamonds than you know what to do with in heaven. So diamonds will be like sand on a beach. And I said, in fact, the roads are paved with gold. And he looked at me, and he goes, I I'm going to be so rich. (laughs) So from our Sunday school teachers to Asher, from Asher to me, and from me to you, friends, if this day tells anything to you, let at least tell you that you don't have a clue what's waiting for you. And might we all come to this story with the wonder of a child. A few weeks ago on the Sunday that Swindle was installed, we had two different sermons that day because of the occasion. And in the first service, I preached on Psalm 42. And I opened that sermon with the somber reality of how despair has become a new national epidemic. Despair. From 2015 to 2017, the life expectancy in the United States dropped for three consecutive years. The last time it dropped three consecutive years was over a century ago during World War I that also coincided with the global flu pandemic. So the researchers started to ask, why? In this age, with all of this technological advancement, what in the world could be causing our life expectancy to drop so dramatically in the most advanced country that has ever existed in this world. What they found is startling. 
Because they boiled it down to four main causes. Opioids, liver disease, overdoses, and suicides. Deaths from these four causes have skyrocketed. So much so that they're now being categorized by researchers. They're calling them deaths of despair. These are the deaths that result from what happens when people feel like they have nothing left, nowhere to go, nothing to do, nothing to turn to, and they try to cope with all of the emptiness and all of the pain and all of the hopelessness that they feel. And I know these are things that have impacted your lives as well. We live in a culture that is devoid of hope. Our culture is devoid of hope. And these stats are just a reminder that no matter how hard we try, we will never, ever be able to engineer our own happiness. No matter how hard we try. And yet we are so desperate to find it. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we in the church can struggle with the same thing. We struggle with hopelessness because we live in the same world. And you might say to yourself, yeah, I don't feel hopeless. Yeah, okay, but do you feel hope? Has hope gotten down into your bones and filled your heart? Because being a Christian doesn't protect us from parenting difficulties, job loss, broken relationships, failing health, or the most horrific tragedies. We struggle to find hope in the midst of all of the headlines and all the heartache of this broken world. And why is that? We are the people who celebrate Easter after all. So why do we struggle with the hopelessness ourselves. I'm not a sociologist, I'm a pastor, so I'll offer two reasons. One, we don't experience hope because we're so unwilling to engage with our grief. We do not experience hope because we are refusing to engage our grief. Hopelessness is what happens in a culture that does not want to feel grief. It only wants to feel good. And so when our lives come in contact with this broken world and all of the inevitable grief that that produces, we, we don't know what to do. And since we're so resistant to feeling it, we have to medicate it. Something to make us feel good and to keep all of that grief at bay. And honestly, sometimes we even use our religion to do it. We use it as a crutch, not as a comfort. You can see this playing out even with recent tragic events. We so quickly hear the platitudes of God's in control. Jesus is on the throne. True, 100%. And as well-meaning as that may be, I am convinced that we use these statements as a means of moving on from our grief, not moving in to our grief. And you can see this happening this very weekend. Why do you see so many churches skip over Good Friday and only observe Easter? Because we only want the happy part. We want that part that makes us feel good. And so Easter is used like Novocaine. 
something to distract us from the pain and the hurt and the sadness and the hardship of life for a minute. Easter gets hijacked by therapeutic spirituality that only presents a God that just wants to get you out of your problems instead of a God that is worth finding in your problems. And I will say this every Easter that I preach from this pulpit. If we celebrate Easter in this triumphalistic way that detaches it from the grief of this world, then we shouldn't be surprised that we don't experience hope when that grief comes. Because we just end up treating Easter like it's the 4th of July. Just a day to celebrate that we won't really think about again until the same time next year. And in the end, it really doesn't change how you live. We don't experience real hope because we're so unwilling to experience grief. And maybe it's because... The thing that we really hope for is that we can build a life for ourselves that's as free of suffering and grief as possible. Maybe that's our real hope. And yet in the end, it doesn't mix very well with our Lord who says, in this world you will have tribulation. In this world we will have grief. But secondly, we don't experience hope because... We only remember the historical Jesus. And we don't actually interact with the glorified, resurrected Jesus. It's one thing to remember what Jesus has done. But it's another thing to engage the resurrected Christ. We read books about Jesus. We hear sermons about Jesus. We listen to podcasts about Jesus. We watch shows about Jesus. But do you interact with the glorified, resurrected Jesus Christ. That's different. Think about it this way. By virtue of time, we are cut off from the historical Jesus. We can't travel back in time 2,000 years and experience the historical Jesus that physically walked this earth and witness all that he said and all that he did. So why do I make that distinction? It's because essentially everyone that you know has encountered the historical Jesus. Everyone you know could tell you something of what he did. We do not live amongst unreached peoples. They could tell you that he was maybe born of the Virgin Mary or he died on a cross or that Easter is the day that he rose from the dead. But knowing about the historical Jesus is not the same thing as encountering the resurrected one. Because everyone in this gospel story had encountered the historical Jesus live and in the flesh. They had a front row seat. But what they needed was an encounter with the glorified, resurrected Christ. And so do we. So friends, I don't want us to just feel a moment of hope today. I want us to learn how to find hope tomorrow And the day after that, and the day after that, and the week after that, to learn to find hope in the midst of your circumstances and your situations and whatever it is that life brings you in all of that grief. To find all of that hope in the grief of 
a struggling marriage and difficult parenting and those hard days and those melancholy moments of frustrating career and those seasons of life you just want to be over. I want to find hope in that. So how do we find it? Well, the passage this morning weaves it all together. It's a story that asks you, do you want to encounter the resurrected Christ? But what if he's hidden inside of all of those places in your heart that you don't want to go? Do you want to find the resurrected Christ and know the hope of encountering him? To find him, we have to walk the road to Emmaus. It's the afternoon on the very first Easter. Two disciples are walking the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. These two disciples aren't a part of the 12. They're probably part of the larger group of 70 disciples that closely followed Jesus everywhere he went. They're walking in that hot sun, deep in conversation about everything that had just happened over the last week in Jerusalem. The triumphal entry, the mobs, the crowds, the crucifixion, trying to wrap their heads around all of it in the rug pull that it was. Probably just trying to get out of, get out of town to just escape the claustrophobic sadness and sorrow of the city. Or maybe they were just going home because it was all over. Another traveler comes up beside them. It's Jesus. But it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They didn't know who he was. Isn't that strange? They had walked and talked with the historical flesh and blood Jesus probably for years. But they don't recognize the resurrected Jesus. Why is that? It's because it's not enough to simply know what Jesus said and did. He must reveal himself to you. Here's a way of thinking about it. You know, all of throughout Jesus' ministry, the disciples continuously failed to understand Jesus' teaching. Like start to finish. They didn't get it. They struggled to see the heart and the substance of God's purposes in Christ. Jesus kept saying that he was going to be delivered over and to suffer and he was going to die so that the purposes of God would be fulfilled in him. And the disciples were like, that's cool, that's great, but uh, when are we going to crush the Romans? When are we going to take over the world? Even at the Last Supper, as Jesus is talking about his suffering, an argument broke out amongst the disciples at the table about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They did not get it. Jesus didn't fit inside the box of their hopes and expectations. They were blind. And these two disciples were too. But now Jesus is resurrected, which means that he now fully embodies the purposes of God. Jesus is now the very fulfillment of his teaching in glorified flesh and blood. And these two disciples don't recognize him now because what they were blind to spiritually before, they're just blind to physically now. They needed the window black of their hearts to be torn down and encounter the resurrected Christ. But that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? How does the resurrected Christ reveal himself? 
Jesus walks up to him and he asks the simplest question. What are you guys talking about? What's this conversation you're having? Isn't that so strange? He knows exactly what they're talking about. If it were me, I would say, guys, it's me. Booyah. Mic drop. Explosions in the background. Wind machine in the hair. You'd you'd reveal yourself like an 80s action hero? Yes, I would. But not Jesus. He just asked a simple question. What are you all talking about? He's so gentle. And it says when he asked this question, the two disciples stopped. They just stood there because they were sad. They were grieved. Isn't it so strange how it's so easy to talk to others about Jesus, but it's not so easy to talk to Jesus himself? They are grieved, and finally one of them says, My friend, have you been living under a rock? Are you literally the only person, the only visitor to Jerusalem that doesn't know all of the things that happened these last few days? But Jesus doesn't let him off the hook. He's going after all of that sadness. He asks again, What things? What things? Tell me everything. You see what Jesus is doing? He wants them to express their grief to him from their own mouth. He wants them to recount all of the grief that weighs so heavily upon them. To let it rise up to the surface. To finally feel it. To not just talk about the historical Jesus, but to actually talk to the resurrected one. He wants to meet them in their grief, but they have to be willing to enter into it with him. What things? Tell me everything. Tell me why your heart is so sad. Friends, this is not a one-time thing. This is not a one-time thing that we see the resurrected Jesus do. It's what he does every time that we see him. If you look at all of the post-resurrection accounts of Jesus, what do we see him doing every single time? He's entering into the grief of his people. And how does he do it? He does it with those silly questions. Those simple questions that poke at the part that hurts that you don't want to talk about. We see him come to Mary at the tomb and he enters into the grief of loss enters into her grief of losing someone so precious to her, and he asks, woman, why are you weeping? Who is it that you're looking for? We see him come to Peter on the shore, and he enters into the grief of all of his guilt and weakness and shame with the question, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I know I messed up, and I'm, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, but Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. I restore you. 
I forgive you, I love you. We see him come to Thomas who was trapped in the grief of fear and doubt. The other disciples had all told him that they had seen Jesus. He was alive, but he was so afraid to hope. Maybe life had brought him so many disappointments and losses that he was just scared to death to have hope. Don't tempt me with that. Don't trick me into having hope. I know what this world is. I know what this world does. I want to see his scars. Because that crucifixion is the only thing that's real in this world. And eight days later, the resurrected Jesus appears in the room and he enters into Thomas's grief and he says, Thomas, will you come close to me? Will you touch my hands? Will you touch my side? The resurrected Jesus reveals himself by entering into the grief of his people. This isn't new. This is what our God does. We saw with Elijah on the mountaintop when he despaired of living. Elijah, why are you here? We saw with Jonah as he was eaten up with the grief of all of his unmet expectations. Jonah, why are you so upset? It's why when you come to Dark Saturday, it's the first question that you are confronted with. Why are you here? What are you looking for? Are you ready to talk to the resurrected Christ? Because he enters into the grief of his people with those silly questions so that we might enter into that grief with him. And you still say, why? Why there? Why grief? Because grief is that part of your life where you feel so powerless and hopeless and crippled. Grief is that part of your life where it feels like the world won. And Jesus meets you there so that you might encounter the one who overcame the world. It's where he met them. It's where he'll meet you. And it all starts with that silly question. What things? Tell me everything. So Cleopas answers and says that there was this man, Jesus, a mighty prophet, powerful in word and deed, who did all sorts of signs and wonders, but he was delivered over and he was crucified. They went through all the details of the historical Jesus, but buried in their retelling of the story, they showed their hand. Cleopas said, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. We had so hoped that he would be the one to rescue us from the Romans, to free us, to restore us. We had so hoped, but now all of that hope is gone. And that's it. That is what Jesus is after. That hopeless space where it feels like the world won. Where our disappointments finally rise to the surface. It's what Jesus wants to enter that grief and for you to finally give voice to all of those unmet expectations and desires. So that we finally start being honest with ourselves and with him. We stop throwing platitudes at it all. We say, Jesus, yes, blessed be your name. But I so wanted you to heal my loved one. 
Jesus, I so hope that you would intervene with my kids. Jesus, I so hope that you would have made my life turn out differently. I so had hoped that you had been there that day. I so wish that you had done something in that moment. Now these disciples are being honest about what they really wanted. We hoped that Jesus would deliver us, but now he's dead. Now they're being honest with Jesus. And now Jesus is going to be honest with them. He says to the two, are you so slow of heart? They're so slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Don't you know? Don't you know it was always supposed to happen this way? And then this is where you think that Jesus would do the big reveal. Guys, I am the one. Here I am. But he doesn't. Instead, what does he do? He tells them the story. He tells them the story. He leads them through the scriptures and he retells the story from the beginning to show them how all of this pointed to this. It all pointed to him. And that is so deeply significant. Because again, Jesus could just reveal himself, but he doesn't. Here he is instead leading them through the scriptures. Telling them the story. So what are we supposed to make of this? It's so significant because Jesus meets them in that grief. He invites them to lay all of it before him and to draw out all of those disappointments and devastations. And then he does this. He leads them through the scriptures. Why? Because up until this point, they had made the story about them. They'd heard the scriptures. They'd followed the historical Jesus and saw all that he did. But what did they do with all of it? They thought that Jesus was going to give them the life they envisioned for themselves. They thought Jesus would reinforce everything they wanted their life to be. And they needed to rehear the story. And we know this, how we can come to the Bible and look for those parts that we want. We can look for those verses that kind of make us feel like maybe Jesus wants the same thing that we want. We interpret the story through our own hopes and expectations. Jesus, don't you promise blessing? Well, this is what would bless me. Jesus, don't you promise life? Well, this is the life that I want. And Jesus leads them through the scriptures to show them, to bring them to a place of awakening. By showing them the reason that they don't understand this story and everything that's happened around them is because they were always trying to fit Jesus inside their story. And he does not fit. And Jesus is leading them through it all to say, it's time to let all of that go. All those hopes, expectations, let them go. And trust me, Finally, they come to Emmaus, and all of this is beginning to take effect. Even though they still didn't know this is Jesus, their hearts were burning within them, and they wanted more. They were hungry for it. 
And yet, strangely enough, Jesus waves goodbye. He's moving on. But the two disciples ask him to stay. And they invite him in. And then the strangest thing happens when they sit down at the table. They let Jesus be the host. They let Jesus be the host. Even though they invited him, and even though this very well was probably their own home, they let Jesus be the host. That may seem so simple, like a small detail that you could miss reading this a thousand times. But it's everything. Is this not a picture of what it's all about? Where they now let Jesus take over. They're finally letting him lead the way. And they are waiting on him to feed them. Now they're ready. And here it comes. Jesus took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. And then he gave it to them. And when he gave it to them, their eyes were opened. And that's when they recognized him. Why the breaking of the bread? I think this part of the story holds all the mysteries of our faith. They recognized him in the breaking of the bread. It's the moment that Jesus chose to reveal himself to them. A moment that echoed when he fed the 5,000. And he said, I am the bread of life. It echoed the night of his betrayal when he said, this is my body given for you. Or maybe it's just the simple fact that when Jesus took the bread and he blessed it, then he broke it. And then he reached out and he gave it. They'd look down. They'd reach for it. They'd see the bread. But then maybe they stopped short. They stopped short when they saw his hands. They would see that this man has scars in each palm. Reaching out to them. Scars that look like he'd been pierced for them. Torn for them. Blessed for them, broken for them, given for them, but is now resurrected and sitting at the table with them. And I so wish that I had a picture of their faces the moment their eyes were opened. That moment where Christ met them in the tomb of their own grief, when the dirge stopped playing, And the window black of their hearts was torn down and all of that light flooded in. When all that grief turned to gladness, when all that mourning turned to joy, when all that heartache turned to hope. And faith filled their hearts as they looked up at the resurrected Christ and they saw his smiling face staring back at his beloved. And their lives were forever changed with the only three words that could possibly capture that moment. He is risen. And just as soon as they recognized him, he vanished. He's gone. Why? Because the resurrected Jesus operates by faith, not by sight. And now 
That faith that was born in their hearts means that for the rest of their lives, the resurrected Christ will be no less present with them then than he was when he was sitting at the table with them. The resurrected Christ wants to meet you too. In all of those places that you don't want to go. In all those things that you don't want to have to deal with. In all those things that you're afraid if you talk about them, they're just going to become more true. He wants you to be honest with him. And he's going to be honest with you. And it is not an easy road to walk. Because it is a road that requires, in order for you to walk it, you have to let go of so many hopes and expectations that you so desperately cling to for yourself. It's not an easy road to walk. It's seven miles in the hot sun, but all other roads are dead ends. And I can't tell you what it will be like when he reveals himself to you any more than I could tell you what it was like for these two disciples. That's only for you. But I can say that when they encountered the resurrected Christ, did it not change everything? Because they were awakened to an understanding of Jesus that was so much bigger than they ever imagined. He was doing more than they ever dreamed, and it was more beautiful than they'd ever hoped. They came to know that he was more powerful and cosmic and close than anything they ever knew before. And that filled their hearts with hope. That got down into their bones, energized their bodies to where they jump up from that table and they run. Oh, baby, they run. They run seven miles laughing and crying and huffing and puffing with stitches in their side and tears in their eyes, running all night like little lights shining with the hope of Christ in the dark of this world, running back to that place of sorrow, running back to that place of sadness, running back to that place of grief, the very place they had been running from. And they ran to the grievers, and they burst the doors open with the three words that a hopeless world so desperately needs. He is risen. But here's the thing. None of the things that they wanted or hoped for had even changed. It was all the same. But they were not. Because they had encountered the resurrected Christ in their grief. So you want to know where I'm at with all this? I want to run like that. I want to run like that. I want Chad and Jada Scruggs to run like that. Lois Sprague, I want you to run like that. David and Francis McAvoy, I want you to run like that. Sonny Jean, I want you to run like that. Pamela Turner, I want you to run like that. I want our children to run like that. I want us all to run like that. Like little lights shining with the hope of Christ in the hopeless dark of this world. Because there is so much window black that needs to come down. To run like those who have encountered the resurrected Christ who meets his people in their grief.
That's hope for today. That is hope for tomorrow. That is hope for whatever this world throws at you. Because it's there that you encounter the one who overcame the world. Might we all know that hope of encountering the resurrected Christ. But it all begins with that silly question. What things? Tell me everything. For the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would draw near to all of us on the road. And we ask that you would go to work on our hearts. Even as we walk down the road of this aisle to this table with you. We ask that you would meet us here and reveal yourself to us. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.